We come this Lord's Day to continue in our study. The God of all comforts. We have previously described how God has given His people great consolation and great comfort in the incarnation of Jesus. He's clothed His deity in our humanity and qualified Christ to be the perfect sinless sacrifice in our place to take away our sins. God comforts us by the oath He made to Christ, appointing Him our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ is a far better priest than Aaron, and the oath entails all the perfections of Christ as our high priest. By that oath, He was made the surety of a better covenant of salvation, the new covenant. Christ mediates that covenant between God and man to perform all that is necessary to bring it to pass, to assure both man and God of its total satisfaction and fulfillment. Christ alone bears all the cost as our priest in the place of the beneficiaries, we who are poor lost people. God's oath to Christ assured us that Christ will stand good for the terms of this better new covenant by which we are saved from all our sins. Christ is responsible to perform this covenant, not us. He and He alone will cover the obligations of His people for whom He serves as priest. Christ as our high priest and surety undertakes to keep all the law in our place and He has wrought a perfect righteousness for us. He is the perfect sacrifice to take away our sins. Aaron had no perfect sacrifice, so the Mosaic Covenant could never save anyone. Christ is far better a high priest than Aaron for another reason. The Old Covenant promised life for perfect obedience, but all those priests died in their sin, didn't they? Thus, under the Old Covenant, there were a succession of priests, but they all died in turn and could never see the matter through to completion, but not this man. Our Lord Jesus, our great high priest, lives forever and continues forever as our high priest. The oath promised forever. He is a high priest. Our great high priest is permanent. Christ never leaves. He never forsakes us. We never have to come to any other but Jesus. This is a great comfort indeed for poor sinners approaching the throne of a holy God. But Hebrews heightens the importance of Christ as our forever high priest. Because He is forever, He lives forever to make intercession for us. Christ is our permanent intercessor before God. His intercession never ceases. It is no mere one-off intercession, but continues forever because Christ was sworn by God to be a priest forever. His intercession is never broken by illness or death or dismissal or resignation. As the songwriter put it, He ever lives above for me to intercede. Hebrews has already established that only the true God-man, Christ Jesus, is qualified to be our high priest. His physical human body is forever so that He can intercede for us as a man forever. This was foretold by the prophet Isaiah. Christ is exalted in the final way because He makes intercession for sinners. Paul makes it clear in Romans 8 that it is not only the sacrifice of Jesus that protects the saints from condemnation for sin. Who can condemn us, Paul writes? It is Christ that died, better yet, is risen again 
seated at the right hand of God, making intercession for us. No wonder we have a strong consolation in the oath made to Christ by God. His high priesthood after the order of Melchizedek entails such great blessings and wonderful comforts unto us. Now we come this morning to find in Hebrews 7 the place where the penny finally drops. Where all this teaching about Christ being a better high priest of a better covenant reaches its pinnacle. And it is true that we have referred to this point many times because we have all read ahead and know where the argument is headed. But I wonder whether the readers of Hebrews, the Jewish believers, fully had grasped it yet until the writer comes to this very important, pivotal truth about how it is that the priesthood of Christ saves His people from sin. Now in Hebrews chapter 7, at verse 26, we read this, For such an high priest, that is the Lord Jesus, becomes us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Now this phrase, that the Lord Jesus is our high priest, becomes us, or became us, that is a reference to His suitability to be our high priest. The perfect match of the high priest we need with the person of the Lord Jesus, a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. It is fitting that He should be our high priest and not Aaron, and not any other high priest. You think of the blasphemous doctrines of certain false churches that teach that they have an order of priests. In fact, they appropriate the term Melchizedek to describe their order of priests. The Mormons do this and the Catholics do this. That their priests are after the order of Melchizedek and that they offer propitiatory sacrifices in the Catholic case in the blasphemous mass that the participation of which with the penitent sinner restores his justification and gives him an increase of righteousness, which is a nonsensical statement. The righteousness of Christ imputed to us is perfect already and entire, isn't it? And we're not saved by a righteousness that's inherent to what we do. In our own persons, we're saved by the imputed righteousness of our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So imagine that if Christ is described here as becoming us or being appropriate or suitable to us, how blasphemous it is to suggest that any inferior created person, no matter how fancy of clothes he wears or how tall the roofs are in the cathedral or what kind of solemn assemblies are carried out and marches up and down the aisles and choirs and organs. None of that has anything to do with providing us with a high priest that becomes us, that's fitting, that's suitable, that's proper, that's necessary, like the Lord Jesus is. But notice that it says He's holy. He's immaculate. He's without fault entirely. None of us are holy. Only God is holy. 
The Lord Jesus is holy because He is God. And yet He is incarnate in human flesh. The only man who could ever be described as truly holy, fully holy, is our Lord Jesus. That's the kind of person you need to be your high priest before God. That's the kind of person who can be in the presence of God without fear and without banishment and not like the sons of Aaron who were put to death by the fire of God for slipping up, if you will, making an unauthorized sacrifice there in the tabernacle. But the Lord Jesus is immaculate. He's without fault. He never sinned and He never will. And then this word harmless, some commentators say it has to do with innocence between man and God. Innocence before man and God. That the Lord Jesus was innocent and harmless in the sense that He never harmed anybody. He never sinned against anybody, much less against God. He was completely without fault. He is harmless. And of course, in His ministry, He showed Himself to be very gentle with poor sinners, didn't He? That cried out for mercy. In Isaiah 53, it says that He made His grave with the wicked and with the rich in His death because He had done no violence, neither was there any deceit out of His mouth. He hadn't lied or deceived and He hadn't used violence, trickery or force. And these, of course, are two key elements of living a life of righteousness and the Lord Jesus had done so perfectly and yet it pleased the Lord to crush him he hath put him to grief why for anything he had done wrong in himself no for our crimes that were laid upon him at Calvary and then it says he's undefiled you see he is the spotless lamb of God without blemish he was never disobedient was he to the Father's will. He was without sin, without blemish, without spot. And of course, we know this doesn't refer principally to His physical body, rather to His spirit and to His soul and to His moral and ethical character was without flaw, without failure, without sin, without corruption. And then there's this phrase that He's separate from sinners. This causes people, some people, trouble. What does it mean he was separate from sinners? I think what Brother Gill has to say about that is instructive. He took on the nature of sinners, but not a sinful nature. And he is often in the company of sinners when on earth and was reckoned among them. He was numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 53 said. And as one of them, but he was separated from them in Adam. He was not among the individuals of human nature that sinned in Adam. And we've made this point repeatedly in time past. The Scriptures say that death passes upon all men because all have sinned. And if you study that text carefully, you will see it's not just referring to their own personal sins, it's referring also to their sin in Adam. When Adam died, we all died because when Adam sinned, we all sinned. He was our representative before God. He was our federal head. What we needed was a better federal head. And that's what we have in the Lord Jesus. But the Scriptures teach that Christ is separate from sinners in that He did not ever have a sinful human nature. 
No doubt his human nature was alike unto that which Adam had before he sinned. And he was brought into the world, Gil goes on, in a different manner from the rest of the sinners, not descending from Adam by ordinary generation. And here's a reference to the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus. That he is not technically in Adam. That is, Adam was never a representative of Christ. Christ is the representative of the redeemed. Christ usurps the position, if you will, of Adam representing sinful men in that he represents all those whom his Father has given him to represent. So we say that Christ is the second Adam or the last man. That he was not represented by Adam in the fall. Christ was opposed to Adam's sin. And yet, the Lord Jesus was made man, yet without sin. He has no communion with men in their sin, nor does He encourage them in it in the days of His flesh. The Scriptures say that He bore the sin of many, and He was made higher than the heavens. This is what the next phrase in Hebrews 7.26 says, made higher than the heavens. There is an exaltation of Christ that our high priest has that no other high priest ever had. Christ practices His priesthood in the very glory of God in heaven and not in tabernacles made with hands. You know, the priests in Aaron's day, they practiced their priesthood in part in front of the glory of God, but they couldn't see it, could they? They had to obscure it with clouds of incense. So they might not look upon that glory and be struck dead, but not so our Lord Jesus. There are no clouds of incense to obstruct Christ's view in His humanity of the God of all glory, of His Father. There is a great glory, and that great glory rests upon Christ too. We see in Revelation chapter 1 when the Apostle John sees Him and fell down at His feet as if He was dead. But Christ said, Fear not, rise up. He is made higher than the heavens. He is exalted at the right hand of the majesty on high. And there we have read already that He is interceding for us. Notice in summary how this describes our Lord Jesus as our high priest far greater than Aaron, doesn't it? Aaron couldn't look upon the glory of God. He couldn't be exalted into heavenly places, could he? He was a mere mortal man with sins of his own and he couldn't look upon the glory of God directly lest he die. And he was full of sins himself. You remember the golden calf incident, don't you? You remember that Aaron facilitated that sin unlike what Christ did. Christ never encouraged men to sin in the days of his flesh, did he? But Aaron did. And it wasn't the only time that he participated in idolatry. And there was also a failure of Aaron to intercede for his people. You remember when he was questioned by God about this incident. Of course, God already knew everything. But you know how a lot of times people question other people to 
to lead them into a confession of guilt. You remember he said, first of all, it was these people that pushed him into this. They are the ones that wanted this golden calf, not him. And he took all their golden earrings and threw them into the fire. And out emerged this golden calf. I don't know where it came from was the implication. But of course, he didn't, he didn't intercede for the people. He didn't beg God's mercy for them. He was all about clearing himself because he had participated in the crime against God as well. But you see, the failure to intercede, he was all wrapped up in his own exposure in this matter. But not so the Lord Jesus. He never fails to intercede for his people, for he never has any crimes of his own to cover up or to excuse or to prevaricate about. And then in verse 27, at the first half, Christ needeth not daily, as those high priests did, to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. Here, of course, this follows, doesn't it? If Christ is sinless and perfect, and he is, He would not need to offer up any sacrifice for Himself because as the previous verses taught us, the Lord Jesus has not sin of His own to offer a sacrifice for. Now, here we come to what we read in Leviticus chapter 16 earlier this morning. If you read it, you will see that there is a lot of what we would call rigmarole involved in the fact that The high priest couldn't just straightforwardly offer a sacrifice for the people's sin because he first had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. Because he was just like the people, yet with sin. Not like Christ, just like us, yet without sin. Aaron was, you see, the the darker reflection, if you will, of Christ. He was the flawed high priest. He was the sinful high priest. He was the one that had to make sacrifices for himself. And it puts him in a sticky place, doesn't it? There's no priest, you see, that can make a sacrifice for him under the Mosaic system. That's why he's called the high priest. If only only we could have a covenant and a law where there was a priest that was perfect and didn't have to make sacrifices for his own sin first. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is developing here. Under the new covenant, under the high priesthood of Christ, we finally have a man who is God Himself, who does not need to make a sacrifice for Himself because He has no sin to atone for. And this fact in itself should render the the priesthood of Christ infinitely superior to the priesthood of Aaron. But there is more. When you read Leviticus 16, there is all of this extra process that is inserted to make a cleansing of the tabernacle, the altar, and of the high priest himself because of his sins. It comes right after the death of Aaron's two sons who died for their sin in the priesthood itself. They didn't just go out and steal you know, some money from somebody or be rude to their wives or anything like that. No, they actually sinned in the very priesthood they were supposed to be executing, didn't they? They offered up strange fire 
And the Lord smote them dead. Two of his sons dead right there. They barely made it out of the gate. After that happened, then comes the teaching of Leviticus 16. In this teaching, you, you have to read it and disentangle it because there is some places where Moses jumps forward and then jumps back and you have to put it all together in order to have it come out in the correct chronological order. But if you look at what it says in verses 2, 3, and 4, the Lord said to Moses, speaking to Aaron thy brother, and he come not at all times into the holy place within the veil before the mercy seat, which is upon the ark. And he die not, for I will appear in the cloud upon the mercy seat. Thus shall Aaron come into the holy place with a young bullock as a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and he shall have the linen breeches upon his flesh and shall be girded with the linen girdle and with the linen mitre shall he be attired. That's a hat piece that he wore. These are holy garments. Therefore shall he wash his flesh in water and so put them on. So when Aaron's going to come in with this bullock and this ram, he first has to wash his flesh and put on these holy white garments that he was given for his exercise of his priesthood. Notice that first he washes himself. Then he puts on the glorious garments. And then look at verse 5. He shall take of the congregation of the children of Israel two kids of the goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. The Lord has gone out of order by telling Aaron that he will also have to have provided these two goats and a ram for the congregation of the children of Israel. But then at verse 6, Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. So that actually is what happens first in the order of the offerings. Verse 5 is just written in anticipation of what will come later. So Aaron has to make an atonement, an offering of an animal for himself, and then he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And those are for the people's sins. Two sets of sacrifices. First, the sacrifices to cleanse Aaron and make an atonement for him. Second, the sacrifices to cleanse the people's sin and make an atonement for them. And so, for the priests, it was this bullock at verse 11. And Aaron shall bring the bullock of the sin offering which is for himself and shall make an atonement for himself and for his house and shall kill the bullock of the sin offering which is for himself and he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord and his hands full of sweet incense beaten small and bring it in within the veil and he shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. We referred to this earlier. To obscure the blazing glory of God. And he shall take of the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat eastward. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle of the blood with his finger seven times. Now this is the atonement which Aaron is to make for his own sin and for the sin of his priestly family. 
And this mercy seat, of course, is this golden lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which is overshadowed by the golden cherubim and their wings outstretched. And it is in this place where the glory of the Lord appears that must be obscured by the cloud of incense. And this mercy seat is the place of propitiation for sin. It is the place where God's wrath is taken away because of the blood sacrifice presented in the place of poor sinners. And in the New Testament, the Greek word for mercy seat is translated many times the propitiation, as in Romans 3, the propitiation by blood taken up by faith. This is the place where the sins are atoned for. Only after that is done, at verse 15, do we see, then shall he kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people and bring his blood within the veil and do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Notice what Hebrews now tells us at verse 27 of Hebrews 7 is this, who needeth not daily, that is Christ as our priest, as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the people's. He does not need to do that. He does not need to do it daily. He does not need to do it for his own sins. Why? Because he has none. The previous verse has made that clear. Christ is impeccable. He is immaculate. He is without blemish, without fault whatsoever. Now at the cross, you remember in the Gospel passages, there are at least two judges that attest to the righteousness of Christ when He hung upon the cross. You remember first there were the two thieves which mocked Him and begged Him to save them. Come down from the cross and save us. But then one of them turned and rebuked his brother and gave a remarkable testimony. The other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man, that is Christ, has done nothing amiss. Now, if you know much about criminals, you will understand how remarkable it is that a person who is a criminal being judged should be able to step back from his own fixation and terror of his own judgment to state the truth about another victim of the judgment that that person doesn't deserve to be judged. I do, but he doesn't. He's done nothing wrong. This, of course, is not to pat this thief on the cross on the back. This is the work of the Holy Ghost in his heart and mind to convict him of his sin and of Christ's perfection. He begins to get a glimpse and insight into the perfection of Christ, that he really is Messiah, that no matter what they're doing to him now, one day he will return and rule in his kingdom. And of course, he cries out that the Lord will remember him when he returns in his kingdom. Note the kindness and compassion of Jesus for sinners even in the greatest distress that any man ever suffered. Christ crucified on the cross. He says, This day shalt thou be with me in paradise. He gives this man 
a promise of hope, a promise of resurrection, a promise of forgiveness of sin, all wrapped up in that one statement. What compassion Jesus had for sinners, even in the depths of His terror and sorrow and dying with the sins of the whole world placed upon Him. And then the second witness, of course, is the Roman centurion, the man who oversaw his execution. Verse 47 of Luke 23, Now when the centurion saw what was done, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. Now the remarkable thing about that is that in saying that, he declares that what he and his government had done was wrong. They had murdered a righteous man, one who did not deserve to be put to death. He had participated in it. He had done so on orders of his rulers. And nevertheless, here is his judgment that Christ was a righteous man and he glorified God for the way in which Christ graciously, gently surrendered up his life on the cross to his Father and expired unexpectedly early because it was obvious from other Gospels that the Lord Jesus, He surrendered His life up. Remember, He said that's what He was going to do in John chapter 10. No man takes my life from me. I lay it down that I may take it up again. And here it had to have struck this centurion that that is what Christ was doing. That He was deliberately surrendering Himself unto God If it had been anyone else, you see, he would have lingered perhaps for days. That was the whole cruelty of the crucifixion, was that people suffered in agony for days as the fluids built up around their heart and they died of a horrible congestive heart failure and of exsanguination. But here are two witnesses that the Lord Jesus, even at the time He made the sacrifice on Calvary's tree, He was a just and righteous man. And this is in keeping with the writer of Hebrews saying that Christ does not need daily as those high priests, that is the Aaronic priests, to offer up sacrifice first for His own sins and then for the people's. He doesn't need to do that. Why? Because He's righteous and just. But now the penny drops. Why all this talk of our great high priest? What after all, is the real point of Christ being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's been kind of circling on it and hinting at it, but now the writer of Hebrews comes straight out and says it. For this He did once, that is, offer up a sacrifice when He offered up Himself. This He did once. When He offered up Himself. Of what use is Christ as a high priest. You can talk about all the intercession. You can talk about the compassion, but what was the ultimate purpose of a high priest was to offer up a sacrifice for the people. And Christ didn't have to do that every day for His own sin, for He had none, and for the people who were loaded down with sin, weren't they? The reader might have been asking themselves, the reader of Hebrews, what's the point of Him being the high priest? Why is the writer of Hebrews making such a big deal out of it? And the answer comes in what was the sacrifice that this high priest, the Lord Jesus, 
was to make for His people. What was so great about it? Why did it overthrow and supersede all the millions and tens of millions and hundreds of millions of animals that had been sacrificed by the Aaronic priesthood? What are we to say is the real purpose of Christ as a high priest? And that is this, for this He did once, that is, offer up a sacrifice when He offered up Himself. Now here I suggest to you the writer of Hebrews just slams this fact down on the table. The Lord Jesus, the high priest, the one who's sinless and harmless, the one who's after the order of Melchizedek, the one who is a perfect man and yet is deity Himself, the one who was tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin, tempted far greater than any of us, the one who's been demonstrated to be far better than Aaron, far superior to Aaron all up to this point. What was it he was going to offer for the sins of his people? The writer of Hebrews puts it plain here. He offered up himself. The Lord Jesus offered up himself. He is the sacrifice that takes away our sin and reconciles us unto God. And perhaps the readers of Hebrews might have been shocked by this. I'm sure they all understood that Christ died for their sins. But to have it put in this way that when He offered up Himself on the cross, He was acting as the supreme high priest for His people unto God, that He was presenting to God His body and His blood as the sacrifice for the propitiation of the sins of His people. The reason I stress this so much is that this is the first mention in the book of Hebrews of Christ as a sacrifice. And if you go back and you will review in Hebrews 1.3, it says that He by Himself purged our sins but it doesn't say how. And then in chapter 2, verse 9, it says that Christ was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, that He might taste death for every man. So by chapter 2 of Hebrews, we know that Christ, the God-man, will in fact suffer death for His people. Then at verse 10, it talks about the sufferings of Christ. And then at verse 14 of chapter 2, that through death He might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death are all their lifetime subject to bondage. So here is the purpose and power of the death of the Lord Jesus. And then in Hebrews 5 at verse 7, it talks about how He was perfected in the days of His humanity. That He cried out to God with strong crying and prayers to Him that was able to save Him from death. So there is the death of Christ mentioned again. And then in Hebrews 6, 6 is a warning verse to the believers who are backsliding that if they do so, they will crucify the Son of God afresh. But all these things they already knew. They knew Christ died on the cross. They knew that it was somehow meant to be a victory for the Lord's people over death, that the works of Satan might be destroyed. But now here in chapter 7, at verse 27, He did all of this. He made an offering 
of a sacrifice once when he sacrificed or offered up himself. So this is the first mention of Christ's death as a sacrifice, as an offering made by a priest to satisfy God's righteousness and justice. Our great high priest offered up himself. He offered up himself. He is the high priest that provided the perfect lamb himself. He not only offered up the lamb, he is the lamb. He is the sacrifice. This harks back, no doubt, flooding into these Jewish believers' hearts and minds what Abraham said to his son Isaac. When his son Isaac said, Father, here is the wood, here is the fire. Where is the lamb for a sacrifice? And Abraham said prophetically, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And here it is. Hebrews 7.27 The Lord Jesus provided a sacrifice for the sins of His people one time when He offered up Himself. Now, we understand fully the priesthood of the Lord Jesus once we understand that all the superlatives about Christ as a priest, all of them come down to this, that He offered up Himself at the cross to propitiate the sins of His people unto a holy God. Why it was that His priesthood had to be outside the Aaronic priesthood? Because the Aaronic priesthood was polluted. It was sinful. And it had no sacrifice that could truly save just animal offerings that were repeated over and over again. That's why we have to have a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that is why the oath that God made to Christ that He should be such a high priest, with all that it entailed, we see now it entails this ultimate truth that our high priest offers himself up as the sacrifice of propitiation to save his people. It is an astounding conclusion of the argument which the writer of Hebrews has been making since the very first verse. But I wonder if you noticed that in this story there is hidden another distinction between, between the priesthood of Aaron and the priesthood of Christ. That when Aaron offered up the bullock and the goat for a sin offering for his own sin and for the people, he wore those holy garments, didn't he? But when the Lord Jesus was offered up, offered up himself, he wore no fancy clothes at all, did he? They had stripped him naked in his humiliation. You see the the ironic priesthood, they never had to be humiliated before the people when they offered up the sacrifices of the Mosaic Law. But our Lord Jesus, when He offered up Himself as our offering, 
stood to be humiliated on Calvary's tree. All for our sake, our peace to make. As the songwriter puts it, now the sword of justice sleeps against me. And this is yet another tiny distinction that must be pointed out between the Aaronic priesthood and the Melchizedekian priesthood of our Lord Jesus. He made a perfect offering for our sin as our priest when he offered up himself. No wonder John the Baptist cried out when he saw Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And as we come to the Lord's table, we reflect upon that body that He offered up. A real body, a real human body. He was incarnate in our flesh, in His deity. And real human blood that He poured out to make an atonement for us. We celebrate that at this feast, don't we? And one reason we have to use these symbols it's because there's no grave we can all gather around where the body of Christ lies rotting in the ground. He's alive forevermore. He's seated at the right hand of God. We are remembering the body and blood that He offered up Himself as our high priest. And yet, they point us to, don't they, not only that body and blood at Calvary's tree, but our blessed, raised from the dead, alive forevermore high priest who forever makes intercession for us in His glory, in the presence of the glory of God in heaven. Well, let's give thanks for the Lord's table for how it points us to celebrate what Jesus did as our high priest. Oh God, our Father, we rejoice in this bread that Christ left us to remind us of the work that He did on the cross when He offered up His own body as a sacrifice. And He was doing it as our high priest. The only time when a priest offered up Himself for the sins of His people before God. And that one time offering for sin is forever sanctified, forever cleansed all those who are sanctified, forever perfected us by the offering that He made. And we thank You that He was faithful, that He was so much better than Aaron, that He carried out all the entailments of that oath that You laid upon Him, appointing Him the high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, that He did not shrink back from that ultimate purpose to which You had anointed Him to be not only the high priest, but also to offer up Himself for us. Help us to remember what He did as we partake of this bread, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped that He took the cup and He blessed it and He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's all stand and sing number 43 in the black book. Number 43, By faith I look where Christ has gone. 
and see upon his father's throne a man with glory crowned. His brow was marred, and on his side whence flowed the cleansing crimson tide, the marks of love are found. Number 43.